1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Steve Allman is my guest on The Literary Life. Today we celebrate the publication of his new book, All the Secrets of the World. As Anthony Doerr writes, I devoured all the secrets of the world in a couple of big, greedy bites. It is at once a media critique, a coming-of-age story, a meticulously plotted police procedural, an exploration of racial paranoia, and a haunting account of lust and longing on the fringes of what is allowable. Most of all, it's a deeply compassionate book that shows how policies can trickle down into the lives of individuals and strip them of their humanity. Steve is the author of 11 books of fiction and nonfiction including the New York Times bestsellers Candy Freak and Against Football. His essays and reviews have been published in magazines as various as the New York Times, Magazine, Plowshares, and Poets and Writers. And his short fiction has appeared in Best American Short Stories, The Pushcart Prize, Best American Mysteries, and Best American Erotica. It's my pleasure to welcome him on this edition of The Literary Life. So, Steve, welcome to Literary Life. So, I first met you when I was thinking about this 30 years ago, when you interviewed me for a story on the 20th anniversary of the Democratic and Republican conventions, which were held in Flamingo Park on Miami Beach uh, in 1972. So I met you in 1992 or around that time Mm -hmm. when you were writing that story. And now, this coming summer, it'll be the 50th anniversary Mm -hmm. of that very same convention. So, I mean, it begs the question... What have you been doing for the last 30 years?
0: (laughs) Yeah, like one thing I've been doing is writing a series of unreadably awful novels. But like I think of myself as having, I mean, it's not even a strategy, but my pattern is I fail at a novel, I get down on myself for a few months or weeks, and then I sort of bounce back and say, all right, there's still things I can do. Maybe that form eluded me, but, you know, I can still write about the things that I'm really obsessed with uh, that I feel are attainable because I, my strong feeling, it's, a, it's not something that people generally think about when they think about like an inspirational, like a pep talk, but people say, well, if I have writer's block, you know, what should I do? And I always just say, you know what you should do? You should set the bar as low as possible. And people say, oh, well, what do you mean? You know, it's like, well, writer's block is writer depression. It's self-doubt. And for me, anyway, I would get into these states after failing at various novels. And then it stripped me of this writerly vanity of like, oh, well, I should be doing this and so forth. And I, that freed me up to write about stuff that was really attainable to me, that I was urging well, about. Well, you know,
1: it's funny because, you know, you're giving it a, you're giving a reading tonight at Books and Books. And as I've been telling people about the fact that you'll be here and encouraging them to come... And I tell them your name, they go, oh, Steve Ullman, he's the guy who writes about football. Or candy. Well, well that's the other thing I was going to say. <laughs> right. It's football, candy, right. or I really love his politics. Huh. I really love what he when he's really telling it like it is politically. So even though you might have this tape going in the back of your brain about being a novelist who really wasn't able to write a novel, Right. nobody saw that
0: tape right. or understood right. that tape. But that's the way it works. Mitchell, you walk through the world and people say, oh, Mitchell Kaplan, such a fabulous builder of community and bookseller and literary citizen. That's not your tape. Oh, of course your not. Your <laughs> tape is, you know, I'm failing at X, Y, and Z. Absolutely. And we, all, we all have that. Right. But, you know, doubt, self-doubt is a great furnace for the ambitious. So uh, I, I'm not going to sit here and push away my feelings of failure, say, well, they helped me get a lot of stuff done. Could have been a little bit kinder
1: to myself, but maybe the cruelty was a part of it too. So what you basically have done is all of those stops and starts and all of of those times when you were taking that novel you were writing and you were either burning it or deleting it or putting it away, (laughs) you ended up with something that is truly amazing. And that's all the secrets of the world. Uh, which is a new novel that has just come out, just been published by Zando, their very first book. Yeah. Um, and what's so interesting is, I don't know if this is the novel I would have imagined you writing.
0: No, it certainly wasn't the one I imagined writing. I mean, you could knock me over with a feather. If you had, you know, said, okay, you're going to write a thriller, you're going to write a social novel you're going to write, Nancy Reagan's going to be running around this thing. Scorpions are going to be running around this thing. I mean, there's so much stuff in the book. It's going to have this big ornate plot. I am not a plot person. I'm a like inner life person. And so there's, I almost have to put a little post-it note when I say like, give it to friends or early readers and say like,
1: it's not going to be what you think at all. Well, because you have developed a kind of a reputation for the books that you have written. However, this really, I think, is a synthesis, when you really think about it, of a lot of your different interests that you put into a different kind of form. Because it is a thriller, but it's an elevated thriller. It's a literary thriller. Why this novel and why now?
0: Well, those decisions I don't get to make, right? Artistically, the unconscious... If any, if, it, if it's working, there's the muse, the muse introduces you to the story. In the past, I have, I have pushed it, and I have said, "I am going to tell this story. I am going to tell the story of Shabbatite fee." That was one of my failed novels. A great false messiah in Jewish history. What a story! What a tumultuous and so. Um, and okay, maybe if I'd had, I don't know what, something more or deeper or better, I would have been able to write that story efficiently. But as it was, I was consciously grinding so hard on what this is a a long winded way of saying, I don't have great answers for that. You know, why, why did, why did I start writing this book? I just know that, um, I was down on myself about not being able to write a novel. I finally gave up on the idea of it, or I should say surrendered to the fact that like, maybe I won't, that opened up a certain kind of imaginative space and into that space, the muse marched Lorena Signs, the thirteen-year-old protagonist of the novel, and she walked into the home of Jenny Stallworth, her glamorous, blonde, beautiful, wealthy classmate. And once she saw that home, her, she's, the, her desire, which was a desire to become visible, to be seen in the world, and heard, and regarded, and even desired, got activated. And that put her in a lot of danger because her family is undocumented and she's been told and understandably has internalized the idea that she should remain invisible. And I finally figured out what Aristotle was explaining eons ago, which is that you have to have a chain of consequence. I'd been writing these novels that were like this and this and this, and I finally figured out, no, it's this and because of this, this next thing and therefore this next thing, that instigation. So in a sense, rather than I didn't have a vision board or a big plot or a set of ideas, it was more, well, this is the kind of trouble. This is the nature of Lorena's trouble at this moment. This is the person that Lorena is encountering. This is the secret that is exploding into view. This is a moment where Lorena is coming up against a secret she's been keeping from herself. And it was the power of that exposure and the danger of those exposures that kept driving the story forward very much intuitively. And... I think it was my journalistic experience that caused me to because I could have written this from just from the vantage point of Lorena, she's the engine of this thing. But when I encountered, for instance, you know, we I don't want to give away spoiler alerts since I somehow have managed to write a social thriller that has spoiler alerts. But you know, when she encounters the police officer, I don't want that to be a flat stock character because that police officer has a whole complicated history and a story that he's born into that has to be investigated if you want to write a social novel, right? From Hugo through Dickens and De Passos and Steinbeck and Ralph Ellison. Like the whole point is to get inside all of the characters and understand how the individual operates within these bigger systems of power. So every time Lorena Lorena gets sucked into this vortex, every time she encounters a new character... I felt obligated to walk around in that character's shoes and try to figure out why they're making the decisions they're making. And, um, so I, I really didn't plan it. I did not have a plan. Well, what did happen is that all kinds of experiences that were, I think, unresolved in my own psyche got sucked into, out of my subconscious and into my conscious mind. Scorpions, for instance. Right. That's from being 21, 22 years old, living in El Paso and going out into the desert and realizing that scorpions fluoresce and that they're this remarkable species, You're not just these gross bugs that crawl around and might sting you. They're essentially, to me anyway, they're the perfect mirror for humankind um, in their in their exquisite sensitivity In their uh, duality, the fact that they see themselves as prey, but they're actually predators as well. Uh, And in the fact that they involuntarily fluoresce, like us. When we're regarded and given attention, we light up. We can't even stop ourselves, even if it causes us to be endangered, like with Lorena.
1: I think it's a good, it'd probably be a very good thing if you could just explain without, again, we're not going to go too deep into the. Into the intricacies of the story, but for listeners out there to know just what brought Lorena into the Stalworth thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. So so there's a well meaning teacher, Miss Catalyst, excuse the Dickensian pun, right? <laughs> like somebody was pointing out to me that Lorena signs is like both your astrological signs and signs and wonders and also science. And I didn't even realize it because, again, your subconscious makes those decisions. So Miss Catalyst is the catalyst of this story, and she she just has this idea, like a well-meaning, idiotic fairy tale agenda, that she'll bring together these two girls of vastly different backgrounds, and that Lorena's extreme intelligence and ambition and sharp mind will somehow inspire Jenny Stalworth, who you can imagine is a somewhat more lax student. And in fact, what happens is, you know, what I remember, you know, when you walked into somebody else's house in 1981, before the mediation of all these screens, you saw a different way of living in the world. And Lorena goes, holy cow. And then the Stalworth parents, for various reasons and in complicated ways, take a, a really um, intense and and unwholesome in, in places interest in Lorena that kind of further sucks her into this dangerous world.
1: 1981. Why 1981? I lived through it.
0: I remember it. I'm familiar with the feeling of that time. And I think I also, um, I mean, one of the things that got sucked out of my subconscious was that a friend of mine underwent the same fate that befalls the stalwarts, which I will not mention because it is a spoiler alert, but I remember that powerfully. And I remember going to their house after this uh, tragedy and, and seeing the mom and what she looked like and that stays with you. I just, I tell the my writing students, you know, always saying this, like you pull the string in, back, in, the, in the back of me and I say, you know, you write about what you can't get rid of by other means. And so that stuff was lodged there. So that, I remember that episode. I think I was also interested as somebody who lived through the, the Reagan revolution and who has been preoccupied with the morality of our culture and our political fate and stuff, to just try to get underneath that gauzy myth of Reaganism. He now seems to me, especially his views of immigrants, are positively Gandhian compared to the you know eugenic psychosis of, of the current right in this country. But he was telling a story and he was a good storyteller, he was a good narrator, he was benevolent and he was charming and he believed it. And the story was like, America's a mansion on the hill. And everybody or a certain portion of the country and everybody certainly wanted to say, that sounds good to be a mansion on the hill, to be a beacon of hope and so forth. But as the years have gone by, I have been preoccupied by these inconvenient questions of like, wait a second, okay, who lives in the mansion, right? Who cleans the mansion? Who gets arrested if they trespass? Um, and, And that to me... I've always had kind of a bone in my throat when it came to the myth of Reaganism versus the very real set of attitudes that he projected, especially about the, you know, the role of the state, which is essentially handed all to the corporations and the one area where you should have more state involvement is in, well, certainly in the fate of women's reproductive rights, but also when it comes to law enforcement that it is the job of the state to protect certain people from certain other inherently evil people. Back then, as you'll recall, Mitchell, they didn't speak explicitly about the, ra- the racism of that view, that it was essentially a white supremacist view, but now that is currently something we, that the right no longer hides, that they view poverty and people who are in privation and immigrants as morally defective.
1: Yeah, the whole notion of social Darwinism is run amok right now. The two things that I found since you set this in 1981, not only the Reagan Reagan period, because I remember it as well, I'm a bit older than you, so I remember it from a different perspective. However, the fact that it was pre-internet, pre-electronic stuff, pre-all of that was something... Really refreshing yeah. to read, yeah. to read about what it was like that if you wanted to get a hold of someone, you had to make a analog phone call yeah. to try to get a hold of them, or ring a doorbell to see if somebody was home.
0: This book would never have existed, the plot, would never have existed if it was set now they would have jenny and lorena would have just done it by google doc and text and lorena would have never gone if she wanted to get information about scorpions she becomes passionate about understanding scorpions
1: and the mystery of their fluorescence she has to go to a place called a library and you did that so accurately and you brought that period back you were young during that period you were in middle school probably yourself Yep. yep But yet you had a different sensibility. I tell people I grew up in Palo Alto, California, and they think, oh, Palo Alto,
0: Silicon Valley, zillion dollar homes. And then I have to sort of, I don't go to this trouble, but my childhood was like, I had hippie parents. They were both doctors, but they charged a sliding scale and spent time on a commune, and they lived well below their means because that that was their value system. And we lived in a 750 square foot or 900 square foot eichler. All three of uh, all three of us in a single room. Then my brother got to move to another room, and like we eventually remodeled when we were 13 or 14. We each had a tiny little room, and we went to a school that was the the elementary school in our neighborhood was majority minority. There's probably 30 percent white kids, but. It was very different than when we were fed into the middle school and the high school because then I was exposed to kids who were from Los Altos Hills and kids who were from further north in Palo Alto. And I remember, you know, riding my bike to my job at the ice cream parlor. And it was for me this weird Gatsby feeling because the, the, it was like the Stalworth Mansion. The houses were just so big you know, Ike, our little Eichler was tiny, and the houses were so big, and the lawns were just shimmering but with money. you could be accepted
1: by those people, Well, where a Lorena couldn't be.
0: Well, but it's immediate. interesting. It's interesting because what I would say is that when you, that feeling of being an imposter, of of trespassing upon the manor, you, that stays with you. I mean, I'm a white dude of tremendous privilege. That, that's not going to be a newsflash to anybody. But the feeling I had inside when I would go v- to a party at Los Altos Hills to Nicole Walker's house with its mile-long driveway and was of walking among people who have a certain kind of ease and assurance in the world that was completely alien to me. And I think that's partly what Lorena feels, although his, her circumstances are far more vulnerable, Then you know
1: I guess what I'm driving at as well though is that you were very sensitive to the Lorena's who you grew up with. Yeah. Who were not part of that world and who were being shunted aside when you got to high school or wherever you got
0: and my job as a journalist was to be I mean this is what I love about journalism, analog journalism, which when it still existed in my history here at Miami in Miami at New Times and before that in El Paso, it's like this giant sort of stick that you're at the end of. and journalism pushes you out into the world and it's your job to like a scorpion with those fine hair to just pick up on the vibrations and experiences and imagine and try to empathize with, what is Who are these people? What story are they born into? What are they going through? Like that's your job, is not to tell your own story, but to be sensitive and in, be an interpreter and
1: voice for the for Absolutely. your subject. This is not this is not an fiction in yeah. the least. Right. And it's the opposite it, in a it, it, way. I needed need to
0: get away from it, my it's, story.
1: It's completely away from your story. But what I'm trying to draw upon a little bit are the threads of who you are that you can find. Oh in yeah. This. What's different about this is that it's in the context of a really compulsively focused fiction. Right. It's propulsive. You can't put it down.
0: Right. And that is another thing that I didn't think anybody would ever accuse me of, of like writing something that really is a, is a page turner. But I, I, here's a good example of, of the way I think it works. It's like, I lived in El Paso. When I was in El Paso, I was, you know, straight out of college, very sheltered and like living on the border, never having thought about the border and and what it means. And so what I was doing consciously most of the time was like writing, terrible reviews of Metallica and Rat and Cinderella and all these heavy metal bands and writing pretty silly feature stories. Um, But I was also witnessing what the border really means and what immigration means. I wasn't ready to write about it yet. I wasn't doing serious investigative journalism. I did that a little bit more in Miami, but I just wasn't at that point of evolution. I was in my early, oh my God, I'm a journalist. Let me get my pretty little byline into print let me go ha- be in the front row of the concert. I was you know, getting off on that. So 20 years go by since my El Paso experience, and I write a collection of stories, My Life in Heavy Metal, that starts to deal with the experience in El Paso, but only the part that was me being a sexual idiot and getting off on you know, going to these concerts and being a big deal reporter. And it takes another 15 years for me to say, well, actually, there was all this other stuff. That was happening in El Paso. I was coming. I was becoming more conscious of what immigration is, which is just making the American dream a criminal act, essentially. Um, and but it wouldn't have occurred to me to. I was aware of it. It was being absorbed. I, I was feeling the vibrations of that and witnessing it. And those moments were staying with me of watching people come across the Rio Grande and. Uh, the, the INS vans, you know, chasing young women a- across the low scrub right outside my building. Like, I saw all that. But I wasn't really ready to deal with what it meant or cast it in the form of a
1: story until 35 years later. Yeah, it's miraculous, isn't it? I mean, it, the, the intuitive... <laughs> it's miraculous how slow I was. No, no, yes. no, no. I don't mean that being miraculous. I mean, you have a certain kind of intuitiveness that is you. Yeah. You can, anyone listening to you talk understands how you know how you are extremely aware and thinking about motivation yeah. and thinking about your past and thinking about where certain thing, things come from and why you do certain right. things. And then all of a sudden, right here comes this, this story right And that it was, is yeah. not at all relational has no relationship, necessarily externally right. to you. When did Lowe appear? How yeah. How did she appear? She appeared in like
0: 2014, 2015. And she was a freight train. One of the characters says, you know, she's a junkyard dog. She was, that's what you want. That's the substrate of any great story, right? Is a, is a strongly defined character. So she's fiercely intelligent. And she's really courageous, foolhardy even in her courage. And she's very resilient and stubborn. And she's also very vulnerable in ways she doesn't fully understand, right? So that's what you want. That's Jane Eyre. That's, you know, Jasira in, in Alicia Arian's Towelhead. That's Did you
1: know that When you first came across this character, you knew immediately. I knew
0: knew immediately that I wanted her walking into the Stalworth house, and I knew that the Stalworth parents would look upon her in a particular way for different reasons and would regard her in a way that she was desperate for. This is something I didn't consciously realize, but you're asking me these questions, so I've been trying to understand where the hell this thing came from. And, And the previous novels that I excreted over the years were not, they did not, I didn't understand that the central job of a novel is to explore the internal conflicts of the characters and that those in- internal conflicts exist before the characters even appear in the story. They bring them to the story. So I didn't like plan this out consciously, but Low arrived with a, a danger. She, she, a conflict, she yearns to be seen and regarded and desires. And that is terribly dangerous for her in ways that she cannot understand. And the plot is going to push those dangers into, into reality. But I wasn't planning it. I just knew that it had juice and I had the feeling that this is giving me energy and it's pulling me rather than the feeling I had intuitively of other novels where I was pushing and pushing and just pushing the characters around, pushing the language around because they didn't have story. And that's what writers do. In my experience, when they don't have story, they have to, me anyway, I have to push the language around. It becomes this, See, aren't I smart? Aren't I insightful? Look at that sentence. And that's different than telling a story. The reader wants a story. And once I had this, so I wrote 200 pages, 250 pages pretty quickly. And then the 2016 election happened and the months preceding it. And that, which I considered to be a mass psychosis, was, you know afflicted me pretty heavily. And as you know, I got pulled out of like a lot of people, the pressure of the real just squashed my imagination. I was like, I cannot do this fragile world building. It, things are on fire here. There are people who are going to get hurt. But when I returned to it after, when I returned to the novel, I was like, you know, 2018. And I was like, I remember that book I was working on before I went crazy. And I want to see if it still has energy. And it, not only did it have energy, not only did I go, oh my God, Lorraine is like my, that's, that's the junkyard I want to ride or die with. But we were in a moment where the direction that the novel was heading, which was really an examination of, of immigration, of undocumented, the undocumented experience of what it means to try to travel to this country, yeah. had become absolutely morally essential. Because at that point, it wasn't the government insisting that there be a more vigorous criminal justice system or any of these other sort of coded messages that Reagan was sending. At that point, the, the U.S. government was in the business of traumatizing refugee families by by pulling them apart, and that's something to me that is clearly fascistic, it's monstrous, and we are all complicit, we were all there. So I think I had a feeling of incredible urgency, and it caused me to travel into the points of view of the characters in the story who are the most vulnerable, not a place I thought I was going to go, but a place that felt like it would be utterly irresponsible if I didn't.
1: Was the way you approached Lorena the same from the beginning in terms of uh, having having the spotlight be on her. Was she is the main character.
0: She's always the main character, but I am aware that like this is a strange book, and I give Zando a ton of credit for publishing it for numerous reasons. but the central one being it's it's a shapeshifter. It begins as kind of family intense psychological family drama focused on Lorena and Jenny to a lesser extent in that family. And then it becomes, a police procedural, and then it becomes a walkabout in the desert that's very much about man and nature and about science versus faith. And then those elements that are introduced and characters in the first three books start to get synthesized in the next two books. The strands come together. And I'm delighted at that, but I understand that certain readers Will be disappointed to say, "Oh, I wanted to stay with Lorena the whole time." You broaden it out into a social novel, and I wanted a tense psychological thriller that that stayed lodged within Lorena's point of view. I'm speaking maybe out of my doubt, but I understand it. If there are people who yeah, say, "Yeah, there like, may
1: be readers who want that," I didn't right. feel that myself. I mean, yeah. well, you certainly wouldn't tell me if you did. So I appreciate that. <laughs> no, well, who knows what I would say, but. But I did, I, you know, I was with Lorraine in the whole... I mean, she was really the She's character... She's the through line. She was the character yeah. that I cared about the most. Right. You know, I wanted to make sure that... Me too. That, that, that good things happened. But but the other thing is, it was also, you know, knowing, knowing what you've written about politically as well, it also seems like you had a hell of a lot of fun doing this thing, with, particularly yeah. with Nancy Reagan. How did that come about? Oh, God, again, like, the idea that I spent
0: you know, 40 years flattening Nancy Reagan out into a, 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 you know, astrological ditz, you know, with her fashion nonsense and her China patterns and so forth. And if you had said like, Hey, you're going to write, I'm seeing the future dear Scorpio. And you are going to end up writing a novel in which Nancy Reagan is a point of view character. And not only that almond, but you are going to find common ground with her. You are going to be sympathetic towards her, um, even though she's monstrous in her behaviors and monstrously naive and misguided and destructive in ways that she can't apprehend. Um, I would have just said, no way, not Nancy Reagan. She's just too superficial. But look, man, you know, that's not how it works. Good novels have to love and understand, seek to understand, not approve of, not give validation to, but closely examine and understand all the characters and my mission here since i was traveling so far beyond my lived experience into so many different points of view was to not let any of them get flattened out and when i started to think about nancy reagan in 81 she's seen her husband get shot and almost killed she loves him fiercely she believes in the mission that Reagan is really sent to lead this country. And like any other human being who really loves somebody, they will adopt any kind of wacky belief system if they think it will keep that person safe. That part of Nancy Reagan, I totally felt for. And um, that is like the inconvenient, but beautiful part of writing a novel is that you have to care about all the characters. I've read novels where you get a clear sense that the author feels contempt for certain characters and they're, I don't know, just bums me out. It's like, (laughs) it's like an empathic failure.
1: (laughs) So as a journalist, uh, what kind of research did you do to to sort of come to that rounder view of Nancy? Yeah, not as much as you would think.
0: I mean, because in other projects I hid behind the research. Or I just, you know, plunked it whole cloth into the, into the draft. Because uh, again, I was trying to solve a story problem. I thought, well, maybe I'll find it in the research. Here's the Crusades, clunk. You know, here's the Chemolnitsky Massacres, clunk. You know, 5,000 word essay. So I was very leery. I just grabbed enough history that I could plug into the psychology of the characters. And that includes the scorpions. Um, I did not bury myself in extensive research, but when it, when I realized that this mystery of fluorescence still exists and that for all our scientific innovation there's people walking on the moon and we still don't know why this ancient species lights up under ultraviolet light, every species across every ecosystem on earth. I'm like, hold on a second. There is something in this mystery of, of becoming suddenly and involuntarily visible that is thematically all about Lorena and that Lorena herself is smart enough to try to solve. And I think the solution she comes up with is kind of elegant and fascinating and maybe even is the answer, I don't know. But well, I did not do a ton of research. Mm-hmm. I did just enough that I could grab the stuff that felt to me really evocative.
1: Well, it also keeps the reader, it makes the reader go down yet another alleyway. Right, in order to keep their interest in what happens to Lorraine and what happens in this story. So it acts as a wonderful plot point as well. With everything that's been going on in popular culture these days and in fiction, were you concerned at all with the notion of this is not my story to tell?
0: Yeah. And and how did you deal with it? Well, I will say two things. When I was writing it, no. Because um, I think about like... They asked, you know, Toni Morrison, you know, does Williams Styron have the right to, you know, write the confessions of Nat Turner? And she's like, of course. you know, Everybody has the, artists have the right to, that's their job right. is to try to imagine their way into other experience. That's how that enlargement of the moral imagination is what they're trying to transmit to the reader. So I don't think I was doing anything other than trying to chase the story as I was writing it. I was not thinking about, is the reader going to be entertained? And I wasn't thinking, is the reader going to be offended? With well, well, certain sensibilities. I was just trying to hold on to it and, and chase it. Um, And when I got to the really interesting moments, for whatever character I was, you know, dramatizing to try to be inside of them, not listening to the focus group saying you can or can't or whatever. That kind of superego is always an enemy of art. Right? You can't just like, Be self-indulgent and let your id go, blah, aren't I genius? But you also can't have the commissar saying, well, now, hold on a second. So I was not in the the writing of it, the the conception and writing of it. I was not thinking about that. I was thinking, um, is this true? is this honest? Is this, is this the way that this person would think in this moment? And that's part of the reason why I started burrowing into Nancy Reagan, burrowing into the police officer, Pedro Guerrero becomes a a big part of the book, burrowing into Tony uh, Sainz, Lorena's Lorena's older brother. brother, because that is the, that is the way that you make sure that you're not, exploiting the characters
1: did you have other readers as well oh, yeah for were sure people who read it oh
0: yeah and... my pal you know my pal victor cruz who's you know will be yeah. at the reading hopefully in, in in a few minutes um i had him read it i had jen de Leon, who is um from central america her parents were from central america and grew up as an immigrant a brilliant novelist and memoirist i had her do a really really careful sensitivity read um and she would you know again i think she had fascinating and important things to say about here in this moment you know this detail I don't think is quite right and so forth but her overall uh, take was very much yeah this this works for me um, and I had a police officer read it I had my friend Paul Salopak who the book is dedicated to who was my comrade and colleague in El Paso who grew up in Mexico and has covered the border and immigration. I consider him like one of the foremost experts um, on it. And, uh, you know, I just had a long list of people and then a bunch of writer friends and my wife, who's a brilliant reader and editor. And with all of them, I wanted them to just like tear it to shreds or at least tell me where anything is ringing false. Um, and they they did, actually. <laughs> and, and then I did a lot of revision. <laughs> but not...
1: It wasn't like i had to reinvent the wheel no and you know the 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 overall feeling that i had as a reader reading this was that that the ease with which you wrote it and as as quickly as it came that was the way i found the book as a reader bingo in other words it went quickly yeah and I felt like I was on a ride, and I felt like I was a ride that I was happy to be on, and yet I was provoked all over the place. Yeah. And so you, I, I have to just say, Steve, it 30 years, but it was really worth the wait. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Would you that, read a little something? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mine? Yeah, this would give us a little sense of uh, kind of, um, you know, some, some of the themes here. I'll read a little bit from the beginning of the book. Thank you your opinion means a lot to me. I know you read a lot of books. You know, just sell them. You read them. Um, this is, uh, so Lorena enters the Stalworth mansion and becomes the object of all this fascination. I'll just read a little scene in which Marcus Stalworth, the dad, um, takes Lorena and, uh, Lorena, uh, Jenny's older brother Glenn out into the desert. Jenny doesn't want to go on this journey because it involves snake chaps, which freak her out. And so it's just Lorena, who's braver, who says, sure, I'll go. She wants to go. She's very intrigued by Marcus Stallworth um, as a scientist and as a, and as a man. Mr. Stallworth led them into the darkness. He lugged an oversized lantern, which he set down on a small rise. Close your eyes and keep them shut until I say, do it, Glenn murmured. ''Okay,'' Mr. Stoller said, ''open.'' An iridescent purple light gleamed out in all directions. Lorena's eyes scrolled across an ocean of sand, upon which now lay scattered scores of tiny glow-in-the-dark toys the sort kids on TV pulled from cereal boxes. Then the toys began to move. Low gasped. ''These were living creatures, many-legged and scrabbling like tiny lobsters. ''Welcome to Scorpionville,'' Glenn said. Low glanced at the sand around her feet. A scorpion the length of a hairpin labored under the weight of its stinger, which hung like a fang jewel over the armored segments of its body. "'Don't be frightened,' Mr. Stalworth said. He was suddenly right beside her. "'I'm not,' Lowe replied. "'What do you think?' "'There,' she cast about for the right word. stunned to find the truth in such a simple one. "'They're beautiful.' She could feel Mr. Stalworth inspecting her face, trying to figure out if she really meant it. He took off his glasses and began furiously polishing the lenses with the hem of his shirt. For a queer moment, Lo imagined grabbing his glasses and tossing them away. And then I'll just tell you, like, I want to skip a little bit, but basically to everybody's disbelief, Lorena wants to hold a scorpion. Mr. Stallworth has held the scorpion. Glenn has, and Glenn is kind of a macho soccer kid, which is basically the me character in this because I was a soccer kid. Uh, says, are you going to pick one up? Are you going to pick one up? Glenn asked Lorena. I'm sure she's had enough excitement for one night, Mr. Stallworth says. I'm not scared. Lo said, uh, I'm not scared. The words came out louder than Lorena intended. More softly, she added, I'd like to hold one. Mr. Stallworth switched on the lantern. He stared at her face again, half in wonder, and picked up another one, bluish under the light. A gentle species, he said. It's sting no worse than a wasp. She reached out, and Mr. Stallworth uncurled her fingers. The earth was trembling beneath her. Then she realized that it was her and not the earth. You don't have to do this, Mr. Stallworth said. I know. Do you trust me? She met his gaze and nodded, and Mr. Starworth lowered the animal onto her. No way, Glenn said. He's got all the great lines. No way, dude. The creature clung to the knob of her wrist like a charm. Slowly, tentatively, it began to move toward her hand, the legs rising and falling like jointed oars. Lorena's pulse lurched. She closed her eyes to keep from flinching. Tiny feet tickled her palm. She felt a dampness beneath her clothes, the dizziness of what was going to happen next. When she could stand it no longer, she opened her eyes. The scorpion was perched on her thumb, perfectly still, its stinger hoisted like a tiny scythe. He appears to like you, Mr. Stalworth said. Thank you, Steve. That's really marvelous. Thank you. It was a
1: pleasure to, you know, I've been waiting a while to talk with you about a novel. This is really... (laughs) Well, let's talk about something else for a second because we are in the state of Florida in a very difficult time. Yeah, and your take on politics has always been something that I've admired and respected. Uh, What's going on?
0: Yeah, I think there's there is a. I mean, it's so strange. There's this. We've been litigating this. Humankind has been litigating this since the Enlightenment, and actually, you know, in a weird way secrets all the secrets of the world is is, is about this like do we believe in science and do we believe in the principles of the enlightenment or not and um you know that is still playing out i think there are certain precincts of the culture that are saying yeah we do that's settled law okay and you know yes people have religious beliefs and those are really important but also we just recognize that for instance this week one of the things that the state should not mess with is people's volition over their own bodies. Mm-hmm. And for the government to say actually that not just, you know, the American dream is a criminal act, but reproductive, your reproductive uh, rights and the decisions you make around them as a woman are are a criminal act. Like that's the moment we're lodged in. And that is a moment of, of moral regression uh, in terms of just the, the story that america tells about about the kind of freedoms that are going to be afforded to its citizens and you know that is what elections litigate and everybody who is gnashing their teeth and worrying about themselves and their people but also especially about any uh, women who are living in certain states that are going to outlaw abortion and make it a criminal act who and, and women especially who are going to have difficulty getting access Uh, to uh, an abortion if they wanted, or other kinds of um, health care that they need as mothers or potential mothers. Like Everybody who's really freaked out about that should get off their ass and be as politically active as possible, because this is what elections are for. I have no idea why uh, after four years of psychotic mismanagement and sadistic paranoid nonsense... The vast majority of citizens of good faith in this country would even think for a moment to go back to those dark times. But clearly, in Florida, that is happening in, on all these different fronts, and it's not happening because there is a majority of people in this wonderful state who uh, hold such corrosive views towards women, towards uh, you know, uh, towards people who are struggling economically. Uh, and struggling to f- sort of find a better path to opportunity it's because the great sort of confused middle of this country is inactive they're apathetic
1: well, uh, well not of that but we're also in a very dysfunctional political time meaning that our political institutions are a little bit yeah. out of whack or yeah. a lot out of whack, because yeah. I agree with you. I don't think it is the majority of people. It's not even the majority of people in right. Florida right. who are represented by the right. uh, views of Desantis. Right. It's that through gerrymandering, through a whole bunch of other things, and the Senate he's, is completely yeah, nuts. the Senate and yeah. and what what's going on. But what what hearing you talk makes me understand how your voice being out there in this political environment is so important. Is it something you see yourself doing uh, even as you go, yeah. you know, continue to work your way through with this book? At this well,
0: moment? hopefully the book is wildly successful. And, right, that would be great on many levels. The first level it would be great on is when I do a workshop for democracy, which are these workshops that I do where I'm basically teaching and the, the cost of the workshop is that you contribute to a candidate or cause you support, whatever that might be. Like if those became, if I became more famous and, and, and influential, then that idea of workshops for democracy would have a bigger footprint and I could get other writers and artists to join in that cause. Well, we have
1: not given up on that. You and I have talked about that in the past right. and you're famous enough for me. So we're going to make <laughs> okay. sure that we get those workshop workshops uh, for democracy in play because we need that more than ever. We need certain institutions to be there to back us up yep. most specifically the supreme court the one thing that we all had that fed into our idealism yep. was that we had a very very active supreme court that was backing up the civil rights movement right. all of the different movements that were going on right and now we have no backstop right. which makes it really scary are kind of yeah. dangling on this precipice right. without any kind of a safety net and i think that that calls for all of us to really go out and vote and right. make sure that the next judges that are put on the supreme court right. are not permitted there should be there should have been no way in hell that trump got three judges right <laughs> right three judges right. out of this were through donald trump right that
0: he can work the media you know, all the secrets of the world. It's no coincidence that as an apostate journalist, yes. the media comes in for a lot of criticisms yeah. because they create an environment that is creates the wrong incentives. You know, what happens, again, no spoiler alerts, but what happens to one of the most vulnerable characters in this novel is essentially
1: what happened to yeah. Louis Diaz, the, the alleged Bird Road rapist, right? Yeah, um, which brings me to your days at New Time. And, and you've, you've referred to it a couple of times. Talk about that particular case. And when you were at yeah. New Times, that was one of the biggest stories.
0: Yeah. So the Bird Road rapist in nineteen in the mid-70s is a serial rapist who is uh, victimizing women around Bird, uh, around Bird Road. He gets the sobriquet from the media, and all of a sudden there's tremendous pressure to make an arrest. They uh, arrest a guy named Luis Diaz, a Cuban-American uh, immigrant, barely speaks any English, works his ass off. He's a fry cook, he's about five foot two or five foot three and looks nothing like what the victims allege. He has rock solid alibis, he all the time smells of fry grease and garlic and so forth, and none of the victims describe the perpetrator as having any kind of distinct smell. There's a million ways when I look back at the case file which I did for, you know, months at a time when I wrote that series, it was like how could they possibly have thought this guy was guilty? Right. The evidence was so flimsy. But the incentives are created when there's that kind of media circus. The incentives are internalized. It's not that people are being bad actors. It's not trying to vilify police officers or prosecutors. But they need to arrest the suspect. They do. He served 26 years in prison. And then, along with thousands of other people who are incarcerated, he's freed after the DNA evidence indicates that he had nothing to do with the crimes. So, you know, it's not like some far-fetched. There are all these true crime stories. But... It's also true that there are untrue crime stories, and that's partly what I think the novel's interested in, is the way in which that fear is exploited and the media really uses it almost as a product.
1: You know, I'm struck talking to you here that, and thinking back to the way we began the conversation, where you were talking about how you spent 30 years trying to figure out how to, how yep. to, how to come up with a novel, that and, and in some ways you felt that it was kind of you were not as successful as you ought to be i would say and i cast in a completely different light that this is this is the culmination of of 30 years of an amazing career and steve you've had that amazing career i knew you when you were young cub reporter i knew you i followed you all through these last 30 years and what you've been doing through all of your work and i can tell you that all the secrets of the world is really pretty remarkable and i wish you all the luck in the world with it i know that it's recently been optioned as a tv series and i hope that more people get to know the story through that and mostly, I hope that it's extremely successful so that everyone will want to follow your lead and get out there and vote right. <laughs> during yeah. this next yeah. electoral period. Yeah,
0: and become active in other ways too. But the, the, the voting is the, is this, you know the floor. <laughs> you can do it's other true. things as well, but yeah. yeah, well, I mean, you know, from your from your years to, uh, you know, our secular humanist overlords, you got years. it. Steve, thanks. Thanks for
1: being on the move. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It was great. <laughs> Thank you.